This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue for my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 41st episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at book two of Shadow, Song of the Dragon, from DC Comics, cover dated February 1992. But first, a little feedback. We heard from a new listener, Shlomo Ben Hungstein. He's involved with the ROM related blog, ROM Space Night Art. .blogspot.com, but is also a fan of the Micronauts and commented on each of the three episodes we've done here of Micronauts. Mostly, we commiserated on the inability to reprint or tell new stories for either the Micros or ROM, as they're pretty much in the same boat. He then pointed me to some great ROM Adam Strange fan art, as well as a Photoshop job on the cover of Micronauts 8, with ROM replacing Captain Universe on the cover. Both of those were pretty awesome. So thank you, Shlomo. It's great to have you listening. We heard from Noel Thingval about episode 37, that most recent Micronauts coverage. Another great review professor. Captain Universe is one of those neat gimmick characters I'm eager to read more of, and I forgot this was his debut issue. Back in the 90s, there was a promo book where people could have their own name inserted as one of Captain Universe's hosts. So for one issue, ordered by my dad, Noel Thingval did indeed get to be Captain Universe for a day. Oh, Noel, that's an awesome story, man. Thanks for sharing it. A few days later, Noel sent me a picture of that comment which he had laid his hands on, complete with the letter to him from Stan Lee. Excelsior, Noel! Excelsior! My old buddy Shag... The irredeemable Shag! ...wrote in about this issue as well. Hooray! More Micronauts! Love this series so much. I never read it while it was being published, but discovered it in recent years. I've been slowly purchasing them from discount bins and Mile High Comics. That is my story as well, Shag. You know, I knew of this book, and I guess I knew it was written by the writer of ROM, but I never picked it up until the Quarterman podcast. He continues, I've read nearly all of the first series, and each issue is a treat. You get more story in one issue of Micronauts than you do in an entire modern trade paperback. Really finding my joy with these comics. Again, that is me too, Shag. I'm finding my joy in discount bins, and as often as I joke about Shag... The irredeemable Shag. His find your joy mantra has been really helpful to me. He continues, In regard to Captain Universe, you didn't seem very familiar with this character. While Captain Universe started in Micronauts, he's gone on to numerous Marvel appearances. Also, I love the way you pronounce a croyer. You, Professor, say a croyer. I say Acroyer. It would be interesting to know which was used by Bill Mantlow. Well, I got my pronunciations from the pronunciation guide that was in the mailbag page in issue 6, the first one I covered. So, booyah. 
Kyle Benning, the host of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, wrote in about episode 38, the first part of this shadow storyline that we're going to cover more of today. This really makes me want to track down the book. I love longbow hunters, and I've always wanted to track down more of Grell's Green Arrow work, including this miniseries, but I just haven't made it a priority. I'm definitely going to have to scour the cheap bins when con season kicks into gear to see if I can finally track it down. Unfortunately, so much of Grell's work falls into that era of DC gold that is yet to be mined for the reprint and collected market. As far as I can tell, this one has never been reprinted. DC, just this year, has finally released some trades of Grell's Green Arrow run, so hopefully this will follow soon. Like you, I'm a huge fan of Mike Grell. Thank you for the kind words, Kyle. Usually, I would have two recommendations. First, wait until my coverage of the miniseries is over and see exactly how it goes. And second, to remember that I paid a quarter for these, and my excitement is always tempered by the fact that I got these books real, real cheap. But, as a self-professed fan of Grell, it's probably safe for you. Yes, I think you should see if you can find these. At a reasonable price, of course. Jason Trenner wrote in about episode 39, the Silver Age Classics. Greetings, Professor. I had to chuckle at the cover, imagining Robin finding Batman drunk on the floor and the Dark Knight wondering what he did last night. Yeah, that's not exactly what the cover was, but you could interpret it that way. (laughs) He does say that this was an interesting done-in-one Batman story. Not deep, but it sounded fun. And their lead shielding would also protect them from slowed-down energy waves of kryptonite, something Batman would encounter about a decade later in a Brave and the Bold team-up with Lois Lane. And then he talked about the elongated man backup story. Finding that he needs better PR, as he doesn't seem to be known in Canada, is a great idea. And ROM number one next time, that'll be fun. And in the next episode, Jason will cover the feedback from ROM number one. But now, let's move on to our issue for this episode. Shadow, Song of the Dragon Book 2, had a cover price of $4.95, meaning I acquired this comic, at nearly a 95% off price. The cover by Michael Davis Lawrence shows Shadow in her flowy garb, left arm bare, proving that Shadow is the original girl with the dragon tattoo. In the background is a huge spoiler, so I'll stop describing the cover right now. The story, A Force of Dragons, was written by Mike Grell, with art by Michael Davis Lawrence and Gray Morrow. Actually, this one is called Dragon Song, but the issue is mistitled A Force of Dragons, which is actually the title of the story in Book 3. I'm not here to judge, because you're not my students. Them, I'm here to judge. And I know that editors have a lot of responsibilities, such as dealing with artists and writers and coordinating and scheduling work required to get an issue out. They also deal with the big picture issues of exactly where a title or a group of related titles is going, but I don't think that getting the right story name on the right issue is too much to ask of an editor, especially on a fancy, square-bound, expensive book. Okay, deep cleansing breath. 
the issue itself starts with a high-level meeting of the leaders of the Japanese underworld. Organizing this is the Oyoban, who we met last issue as the younger brother of the monk, who was the rightful owner of the powerful Sword of Power. This sword brings with it the right to kill, unchallenged, any other Yakuza. The purpose of this meeting is to unite all the Yakuza factions in order to move into the newly open lands of Eastern Europe. He compares their situation to that of their Italian brethren. While the mafiosa battle one another in the name of family over small pieces of plunder, we shall devour all. Let us put our differences aside. We must be one. We must be Yakuza! After this meeting, his assistant updates him on events at the monastery from last issue, but either he's ill-informed or he doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news. The assistant claims that everyone at the monastery was killed, but that neither his brother's body nor the sword was found. That particular combination of events seems really unlikely. The younger brother admits that the older brother is the rightful heir to the sword, but that is a mere technicality. When Takano is dead, the line ends with me. We then flash back between Shadow's past training with her master and her current training at the monastery. We learn that training Shadow in the way of the bow was the master's way of paying off a family obligation. She did not understand that at the time, but is told that she will. One day, she will understand the notion of obligation. In the current day, her skills are still amazing. Mr. Ryan, whose quest to return the sword started this whole thing in motion, does not understand how she can still be so good. He is disconsolate that his best intentions have brought nothing but death to this place. All those lives wasted, he says, meaning the monastery. And for what? To ease my conscience? But the older brother comforts the man, reminding him that this is not his fault, nor is it the sword's fault. It is his younger brother's fault, but that he is committed to the fight. I will do what must be done. Ryan very reasonably points out the odds against him. They've got guns, money, political power. What have we got? A woman with a baby, a semi-catatonic Vietnam burnout, and a World War II retread. Shadow serves tea to the African-American vet, the Vietnam burnout referred to above, and he has a flashback to a woman and a baby killed in Vietnam. He says his first words in this entire series, a scream of, No! as he draws a gun on his current companions, but from his perspective, he's still trying to save that long-dead woman, as his mind can't tell the difference. It's an excellently portrayed scene, with the colors and the shadows clearly delineating the past from the present. The monk speaks peaceful words to him, and Shadow is able to subdue him. The older brother monk admits that he knows nothing about the black vet, that the man just came to the monastery one day to evidently work off some emotional debt from the past to exercise some sort of demon. While Ryan is still trying to figure out Shadow, we get a several-page flashback to her origin and also a recap of her part in The Longbow Hunters. Shadow was raised by the Yakuza as an instrument of their vengeance. 
as payment for her dead parents' debt to the organization. She was marked with a sign on the, of the dragon, a symbol of her father's dishonor, and her own obligation to set the scales in balance again. But she went far beyond the way of the bow, to shadow the spiritual essence thereof. She became one with the bow, one with the arrow. She had become shadow, and had learned the meaning of giri, of obligation, of doing what must be done. It's in a two-page spread in this flashback section of the story that Green Arrow appears. It's the only connection that this story even attempts to make to the greater DCU. With those two pages removed, this is a standalone story in a completely unheroed world. We learn that at this point in time, Shadow and the Yakuza have been engaged in a bitter battle. Each is bound by honor to continue the fight to the end. They will destroy her, the monk says, as if this makes total sense. Or she will destroy them. There can be no other way. Ryan doesn't understand why she came back here, to the middle of this, just to help him. She only did what must be done, the monk says. As if this makes total sense. Our team, gathered atop the mountain, discuss their next steps. We can't stay here, Shadow says, holding hands with her child. When your brother learns that you are not among those killed, he will have an army searching these hills for you. She's got a good point, Ryan agrees. We'd better get out of here before it's too late. But the monk, the brother, recognizes the truth. I think we may be too late already. We then end the issue with a two-page spread that reflects the scene from the cover, which, as I said, does very much qualify as a spoiler. For helicopters have arrived on the mountainside, and a great number of Yakuza commandos spread out, searching for our party and searching for the sword. Do you like oversized comics? Comics with extended page counts like DC's 80-page Giants, 100-page Super Spectaculars, and Dollar Comics Giants? Or how about Marvel's king-size annuals, giant-size specials, and double-sized issues? How about the physically larger Treasury comics? Then welcome to the King-Size Comics Giant-Size Fun Podcast. Join me, your host, Kyle Benning, on a one-man mission to brave the elements and review oversized comics in my car during my lunch hour. Tangent. An abrupt change of course. Tangent. To go off suddenly in another direction or on a different line of thought. Tangent. A comic event featuring brand new characters with very familiar names. Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast.
Find it bi-weekly on iTunes and at greatcrypton.com. In the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. And we're back. And I'll be honest, this one moved a little bit slower than the first one. Maybe you sensed that during the recap. Again, Grell is taking advantage of the extra space he has in this book and in the miniseries as a whole to tell the story. But I don't, don't know if we needed all of those recaps and origins all in the same volume. Maybe some of that could have been moved back into the last issue or even pushed into the next issue. I don't know. But that would have left even less story in this volume, I guess. Because there was not much happening in the, the present of this story as I would have preferred reading it. There's a concept that I've learned about from listening to writers of TV shows talk, and the idea is breaking the episode, which means figuring out what scene you want to happen going into the commercial break. You need something dramatic or, or surprising, or just something that will bring the viewer back to the show after the commercial break. So similarly, the writer of a four-issue miniseries like this needs three of these dramatic moments, these act breaks, or say issue breaks, at the end of issues one, two, and three, to keep you reading. And Grail has delivered that very well for the first two issues here of Shadow Song of the Dragon. Book one ended with the forging of the Fellowship of the Sword after the attack on the monastery. And book two ends with this dramatic helicopter landing on the mountainside. The problem with this issue is that Grell did not come up with enough story in between those two issue breaks, those two peaks of storytelling. There ain't much happening in between there. You know, I've been trained by years as a comic book reader to expect an action scene or a fight scene of some kind every issue, which would normally be every 20 or 22 pages. But this one was 46 pages, and it started right after a fight scene, Uh, the one from the end of last issue, and ended right before the next fight scene, which I imagine is how the next issue will start. So book one ended on a high note, and book two ends with this dramatic arrival of the helicopters and the promise of a fight to come. But in between, there, there wasn't much happening. Back about 20 or 25 episodes ago, we were going over the three-issue Adam Strange series, also a prestige format mini. I had plenty of concerns about those books, but boy, did a lot of things happen in them. This issue, on the other hand, comes close to committing the cardinal sin of being boring. Again, I knew that this was not a superhero book, but there is the Yakuza, a super magic sword, the best markswoman in the world. I don't think it was too much to ask for there to be A little bit of punchy-punchy? Maybe even a bit of run-run? Now, the character development elements were good, let me say that. And the start of the issue, with the Yakuza meeting, that was very strong. The origin story flashbacks were helpful in reminding me of the state of GA and Shadow from 20-plus years ago. But if someone were reading this fresh in 92, paying $4.95 for this issue they would already be familiar with the events of Longbow Hunters. I mean, the target market for this series had to be Big Green Arrow fans, so I'm not sure that these flashbacks and origins necessarily made sense, were were value-added, especially for readers at that time coming to this series. Now, we did have one 
kind of action scene, I guess, where the black vet is having his PTSD meltdown moment slash flashback and draws a weapon on Shadow and the monk. But even in that scene, most of the action that we see is in the form of a flashback. His memories of this horrible day during the war that has left him in the condition he's in. In terms of character questions, some revolve around him. You know, whether he'll ever speak or will he be ever be able to fight you know, if, if, if called upon in this current adventure. So again, there's some interesting things there, but there wasn't a lot of action. Grell and Michael Davis Lawrence continued to keep the manga-like art structure of the book. Uh, this issue had six totally silent pages and another 11 that had very few words at all. And the layouts were very original. There were very few pages with the same layout or even a standard grid layout. The only pages that had sort of repetitive grid layouts were some of the flashback scenes where that repetition was clearly a specific artist's choice and and was a good use of the comic book form. Uh, Lawrence and inker Gray Morrow also do an excellent job portraying Shadow at different stages of her life, at different ages. We see her in flashbacks at you know, various various ages, and they do an excellent job showing that this is clearly the same woman. Now, I'll be honest, the big tattoo on her left arm does kind of help identify her. But she's somewhere in her mid-40s, in the current day of the story, but appears in various scenes as a girl from maybe eight years old on up. And again, they do a great job of drawing what's clearly the same person at different ages. And that is not an easy task. But the overall lack of plot or action that I've mentioned before, some of those art changes just made it move even faster. I I don't know that I've ever used this expression before, but this issue was a very quick 46-page read. I mentioned that book one did not have the suggested for mature readers notation, despite having fully naked ladies in a pool and a scene with a bare-breasted shadow. This book, containing none of those things, does have the label on the cover. Again, where was the editing? Both Mike Gold and Paul Kupperberg are listed in the credits as having some level of editorial responsibilities, so... Maybe with one of those uh, gentlemen is where the buck stops, but it's kind of frustrating. I mean, obviously, again, at 25 cents, it's not a big deal, but at 4.95, 20-plus years ago, this, those mistakes may well have been very frustrating to a reader. The verdict on Shadow, Song of the Dragon, Book 2, as a standalone issue on its own, not enough really happened for this to be totally satisfying, But as part two of a four-part story, I have high hopes that looking back on this, I'll see the important role that these character moments played, that this almost maybe is the lull before the big storm. So the grade is sort of an incomplete. But you know what the great thing about 25-cent bins are? Is that this is a 46-page story on high-quality paper with a square binding that is still very much intact And it's a story written by Mike Grell, so of course it's worth a quarter. It's an official quarter bin deal. (laughs) 
that wraps up my coverage of Shadow, Song of the Dragon, Book 2, bringing episode 41 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. And yes, we will knock out all the remaining issues before we get to the epic, epic episode 50. In episode 42, we'll be looking at Checkmate 17 from DC Comics, cover dated October 2007. I'm starting to find more books from the 21st century in the cheap bins, so I expect that here in 2015, we'll look at a few more of those modern books, in addition to our strong preponderance of books from the mid-80s to mid-90s. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. And for the first time, the canned outro you're about to hear is totally accurate because we do have a Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Relatively Geeky. Come by and like us. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bins. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.